Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and I'm excited to have a gentleman calling in from Utah today here on the phone with me, Mr. Pete Vlastelica. Welcome to the podcast, Pete. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you very much. Looking forward to this, and uh, thanks a lot for your interest. Yeah, no, uh, let me quickly introduce you to our audience here. Um, normally, you're based in L.A., um, and you are, you know, currently with one of the biggest e-gaming companies or gaming companies on the planet here uh, with Activision Blizzard. And uh, But that's where we're going to get to really at, at the end of it. Uh, the conversation is going to be around your amazing career, um, both from an entrepreneurial point of view and, of course, also working with very large corporations um, in the digital and I would call it media space. And this is really the early part. And then, of course, we're going to do a deep dive into gaming and esports here, um, especially, you know, what Activision Blizzard does in the esports space, where you were the president and CEO uh, until fairly recently. Um, and so you were very heavily involved in Overwatch League and, of course, the Call of Duty League. So uh, we're going to do a really take a really deep look into the business model there. Um, and really how all these uh, how these leagues are run uh, compared to you know, a bit, uh, of course, uh, traditional leagues as well. But before we get there, um, we always love to start at the beginning. Um, and in your case, obviously, you're, you came out of Stanford there, had a couple of uh, internships with Walt Disney. And somehow, I think that was sort of also, it looks like your, your first role there. Talk a bit about it and uh, tell us about, you know, how that, how that already ended up you being there in the Walt Disney Internet Company. Mm. Well, let's see. So I, I was at Stanford uh, in the late 90s. Uh, and I, so I graduated Stanford in 1999. And I like to think of Stanford in 1997, 89 as the epicenter in both time and place of this, uh, this internet revolution, the, the right. boom that led to so many great companies coming out of that part of the world. Um, and, uh, and so much value being created um, through this new platform that everyone was so excited about and just getting to know and right. you know there were, there were sort of possibilities were were unlimited um, so you, I made you were right in the heart of that that's for sure it was it was kind of an amazing opportunity and it wasn't you know really designed that way I went into Stanford thinking I wanted to be a doctor um, <laughs> okay. and uh, and pretty quickly um, sort of fell in love with, uh, this internet thing and, um, pivoted my, uh, my attention, uh, during my time in, in college toward, uh, toward internet businesses. And, um, so yeah, I, as you mentioned, I had an opportunity to work at Disney while I was in college, um, uh, on, um, their new internet business, um, literally brand new. Like it was, you know, the Walt Disney Internet Group didn't exist um, mm. when I had my first role there. We were sort of writing the, the plan for it. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, so I did that for two summers and had the opportunity after school to go to London and help open the uh, the office there, uh, the kind of international headquarters for the Walt Disney Internet Group. Um and yeah, wow! What a, what a great way to to start my career that was. Yeah, so at that time, it was all it was ESPN.com, you know, Go.com, and a couple of things like this, mm -hmm. Disney.com, right? So it was just really basic. I call let's call them website, right? Uh, maybe at, at that time, um, what was it exactly what you were doing, and, and or what was it sort of 
how Disney looked at it at that time, you know, looking at now, you know, how that has evolved over the years. Yeah, you, you might be surprised. I mean, it, Disney was actually quite progressive um, in uh, in thinking about ways to use um, this new technology to build new businesses. Um, so, yes, there were the Disney.com and ESPN.com kind of ad-supported uh, websites out there. And they Disney acquired some more while I was there. They acquired Family Fun and we had um, – you know, some movie sites. And uh, so there, w there was that kind of ad supported business that they wrapped up under this banner of go.com for a while. Mm -hmm. um, but then we also had the Disney store online, which is an early um, e-commerce venture. Okay. Um, there was a subscription service for kids called Disney's blast or Disney's daily blast, which was like way ahead of its time. If you're looking back on it with um, extremely kind of bandwidth dependent, uh, heavy multimedia content, um, games and interactive uh, video and that kind of thing mm. um, uh, that was available on a subscription model. So, so yeah, we were doing a lot of different things um, mm. and uh, learning a lot uh, as we went along. Yeah, yeah. We I think we like everyone else, of course. We all got the buck, and uh, I think at that time TSA was a few years old already. And we had launched Total, Total Sports Asia TV, um, similar mm. believing, you know, there's already content out there which you can uh, put out in a different way. And, you know, it didn't last very long. <laughs> I think we, mm. we very quickly realized we were just going to burn a lot of money there uh, and, and we pulled the plug on it. But uh, obviously you kept going there. Um, and in, in your next role there, it was quite interesting with a company called ThinkMap. Um, mm. I guess was so, again sort of in the software, but also media and entertainment space. Just just talk about that mm. for a minute because it, I think it leads into the next one and right after, right? Yeah. So so after London, so I was at, at Disney in London. Um, I wanted to come back to the states, uh, and I I'd become kind of close. And I mean, I was always I always sort of approach these these digital businesses, digital media businesses from the, the business side, I guess. But, but, uh, I was getting closer and closer in my time at, at Disney to the design process and, um, and working closely with designers on, on a few projects and started to, um, develop a real appreciation for, for design, uh, as not just a differentiator, but sort of a strategic imperative, um, for, uh, in particular for, for digital first businesses and, um, wanted to get closer to that world. And so I took a, a role, um, business development role at a company called Plum Design, um, in New York, which was a, a boutique, uh, web design and development agency, um, that spun out of Razorfish, uh, which was one of the, you know, Razorfish, one mm. of kind of the early large agencies and, right. um, just an absolutely phenomenal team that were there at Plum Design at the time. And, and uh, the company had developed a, a software product called ThinkMap um, that they had used on a couple of client implementations um, that uh, they wanted to commercialize. Um, and so I was brought on to both help bring in new clients into the agency as well as uh, help to commercialize this, this software tool. Interesting. So, um, yeah. Now, so you're in New York at that time, um, yeah. and something then, uh, you know, brought you back to California uh, because you ended up in Berkeley doing an MBA 
uh, and focus on entrepreneurship, which of course then leads yeah. into that next role there, which we're going to be touching on. So, um, you know, you just felt uh, you, you wanted to add the, the MBA to it um, or what was the thinking there? It's going back to California. Well, it, it was it was business school that brought me back to California. Um, that and my uh, my wife, my girlfriend at the time, um, I, I was actually I was not planning to leave the East Coast. Um, I was applying to uh, MBA programs on the on the East Coast, hmm. and but my wife, who uh, is from Los Angeles and really really wanted to get back to California, um, basically said. Uh, I'm going back. Um, <laughs> that's where I'll be. The, the weather is a little uh, nicer there. Yes, I would agree. <laughs> um, and so I, I pivoted my plan and, and applied only to schools on the West Coast and um, ended up at Berkeley, which was a, a terrific place um, to be for, for two years. And yeah, yeah I, I, I did focus on entrepreneurship. Ber uh, the Haas School of Business has a, a, a fantastic entrepreneurship program. Um, lots of... Uh, um, you know, startups have come out of there and I, I chose to use my two years, um, of business school, uh, starting a, a company I actually did two. I, I did one my first year that never got off the ground really. Um, uh, but was a great learning experience. It was a, a music startup. Um, and then we, we, with the same team, um, when it looked like that one wasn't going to work, um, which is a great lesson. Yeah. Um, we shifted focus to sports, um, and created yard barker. But look, I always tell people that, uh, business school is a fantastic time, uh, to start a, a business. You're surrounded by resources, yeah. um, your students and instructors who all really want to help, right. uh, work on real life projects, not just case studies of things that had happened. Mm. And, you know, throughout history, um, and you've already foregone a salary. You've already decided, uh, that you're going to spend two years, um, you know, sort of figuring out what's next. Um, and, uh, and so business school was a fantastic time. I, I my, my co-founder was a classmate of mine. Our first investor was one of our instructors. Uh, we had office space in, uh, an incubator that was funded by, uh, by the school, um, a, a few of our classmates were friends and family investors. Like we, it, we couldn't have done it certainly as, as seamlessly, um, if we hadn't been in school at the time. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a great point, especially, you know, we have, you know, younger listeners here, um, you know, how is that rather than just assuming you just go to school, you get a degree and then you find a job, um, really using that while you're on the ground, as you said, and have all these resources. And especially, of course, in a school like Berkeley there, uh, University of California, that, that is just, uh, you know, that's amazing. So I, I love that. That's, I think it's a really nice, nice part to, uh, to point out. Um, and again, you know, I think I, I see that, you know, you were the, uh, uh, the co-founder of the Berkeley's Digital Media and Entertainment Club, which is that all kind of somewhat leads into then really, you know, what Yard Barker was, was all about. But uh, I just wanted to quickly ask you uh, earlier when you were talking about the first one, which uh, you started uh, was related to music, I guess you said, um, what was the part which didn't work um, and which you then mm -hmm. realized quickly and then, you know, killed it before, it, you know, spent too much money on it? What was exactly you know, maybe the one thing which, which you would have said? Oh man! I mean, this, we could do a whole podcast on this. <laughs> okay, I, maybe give me the short uh, version. Maybe I'll give it the short version, and then maybe somebody you know wants to pick up where we left off and and do something with it. And, um, but we, uh, 
we had this idea that, that, that we thought that independent musicians um, w- didn't have enough options. And remember, this is 2004, 2005, right? So the yes. world has changed since then a lot. But, but then it really felt like independent artists, and in fact, even major label artists, uh, di- didn't have access to enough uh, options to finance their careers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were very dependent on this kind of major label system, which, you know, that's everybody knows how, how challenging, um, that model has been over the years. And, um, and for, for small artists, smaller artists in particular, um, it, it felt like it just didn't work at all. And so our idea was to come up with a way to securitize the assets that, uh, that independent artists, um, themselves owned. Um, and the main thing we were looking at was song copyright. Um, and, and then self fractional shares essentially in, in song copy in, Uh, in the copyrights to songs uh, as a way for blockchain here. (laughs) Yeah. Blockchain didn't exist even. (laughs) Well, yeah. and, And even things like Kickstarter, right? Like which Kickstarter came along and, um, you know, crowdfunding, like yeah. no one was talking about crowdfunding right. of any sort at that time. Right, right. Um, so I think what did, what did we do do wrong? It was just way too complicated. I mean, fractionalizing song copyright ownership, like then you're into SEC territory. And yeah. like, it, it was just too hard. We, we made it too hard. Mm. Um, but, but clearly, I mean, as I said, you were, you know, you were way ahead of your time in a sense, because some of that is happening now, right? There are fractional mm-hmm. ownerships of IP rights and, and, you know, whether it's on blockchain or as you said, in crowdfunding format. So, uh, I love that. That's really cool. But, uh, yeah, like you said, uh, we, we want, we, we don't, we don't have the time to go too deep. We have too much other exciting stuff to talk about. And that is Yard Barker. Um, so it looks like, you know, pretty much right out of, out of the uni. Um, you guys started this, um, you know, and so talk us through how the company got started, you know, how you, you know, of course, what it was doing. Um, and then we get into, you know, how we eventually, of course, exited and sold it and, and, and go from there. But uh, let's let's really get a good sense of what were you guys actually building and what did you see was missing maybe as an opportunity in the market? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Marcus, this is the best podcast ever. You're just taking me down memory lane, and um, it seems like <laughs> That's what we do. And a lot of it is so long ago, um, but uh, it's fun to to sort of reminisce. Um, when when we cre- so we created Yard Barker um, as a, uh, a a website. It was a standalone site, mm. which was similar. I don't know if you remember at the time there was a site called Dig. Actually, Dig's still around. D i g g dot com. Was this sort of social news aggregator that was changing uh, the way at least a lot of the people that that I knew and and respected um, were consuming news? Because again, back to the kind of the wisdom of the crowds uh, motif, um, you, you know, Dig was using upvotes um, right. to determine what what news got distributed. Um, more than more than others, and mm. um, and it was it was a bit revolutionary at the time. Like you know, it, it, what Dig was competing with were just kind of static um, news websites. Right. Um, and so we initially our first product was um, was basically just a, a version of that kind of social news aggregation uh, for sports. For sports, right? Uh, yeah, and so we we uh, were aggregating all the major sites, um, but then also uh, while we were doing it, we started to, to discover that 
there were many, many, many um, smaller sports sites on the, uh, and it was another new term at the time in that Web 2.0 era that on the long tail mm. of, of sports news right. um, that were on sites that no one had ever heard of. But as we started to get to know these, this content, we started to, to really to respect what a lot of these smaller um, uh, bloggers were right. were doing. They were right. there was this there was this new uh, type of voice in sports media that was less about you know kind of the professional training and access to athletes and yeah. press credentials, and it was it was less about that yeah. and more about kind of speaking about sports in the same language that. Um, fans use to talk about sports. Oh, fan point of view. Uh, That's right. Yeah, and and, and that was uh, that was really it was becoming more and more popular at the time. And mm. and as we saw that, uh, we we sort of um, focused on the the sports blogosphere um, as the the kind of content that we wanted to promote, um, and uh, and ultimately built a network of about a thousand sports blogs right. uh, that uh, that we would aggregate content from, but then also um, sell advertising on. So we rolled up all of the, the banner and video ad inventory on all of those thousand blogs um, and then sold the, the collective audience um, right. to brand advertisers. Right. Um, we were also working with pro athletes at, at the time to help them create blogs of their own. And um, a lot of people knew Yard Barker for that. Um, And this is, again, this is pre-Twitter, right? Pre-any direct connection between an athlete and a fan. Um, We were... We were creating these blogs. Right. Um, we weren't the only ones doing it, but we we, we had a bunch. Yeah. Um, and so the combination of those fan blogs plus the pro athlete blogs plus the the sales force that we built to go out and bring in, you know, the Gatorades and and Fords and you know big brand advertisers to these small sites for the first yeah. time, um, you know, it ended yeah. up uh, uh, being th- quite valuable. It makes complete sense, and, and, I, and that's always the fun part. Now, if you're looking back now, it all makes complete sense, right? You're going to, you know, how come no one has thought of that? Um, but like you said, at that time, this was still new. Uh, blogging is what's now, you know, what we, we would call influencers now, or key opinion leaders, you know, mm-hmm. QLs. Um, but at that time, it was still a, a fairly new thing, and, and bringing them all together, as you said, almost a thousand of them. I'm assuming this was heavily U.S. focused, or only U.S. focused, or you did it something around the world already a bit, or, or what was the it was, the audience? It really? was it definitely skewed uh, U.S. Mm. Um, because our sales force was was in the U.S. Right, um, and so we were selling the, the U.S. inventory. Right, got it. Now, so even you. You, you started it, and I'm assuming initially it is you, you, you bootstrapping it, or you raised money right away, or what was what was the sort of you know even a, you know none of these things work without money, right? Um, so tell us a bit about right. the, the the money side of the business here, or, or some of the story. Yeah, yeah. So um, I mentioned that our first investor was one of our instructors. We had office space through the school. And we didn't need to pay ourselves in the early days because we were in school. Um, and so we didn't actually need a lot of money at first. Um, and so we raised $100,000 from um, just those kind of friends and family. And believe it or not, that $100,000 lasted 
uh, 18 months. Wow. Uh, that is strapping. <laughs> I don't know how we did it, uh, but, but we did. Um, and, and then after that kind of first year and a half or so, uh, we brought on an, an angel investor who joined our board, um, who was a kind of a longtime Silicon Valley venture capitalist who'd recently retired and was doing angel investing on his own. Um, and so we, we, uh, we hooked up with him and he helped us pull together a larger round, about a million dollars, um, which lasted about a year or so. Um, and then from there, and that, that was when we started to scale the team, um, you know, kind of professionalize the product a bit more. Um, you know, we landed on a business model during that, during that time. Um, and that put us in a position to be able to go out to, uh, you know, to, to VCs and raise a proper series a. So I think a year after that, we raised $6 million from, uh, DFJ, Draper Fisher, Jervidson. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, and the, the fun funding story continues from there. As you as you know, when when you're a CEO of a of a startup, you're always fundraising, yes. um, always attract always attracting resources of some form or other. Um, and, uh, what, and what was the vision at that time? Did you guys sort of say, okay, let's just make this thing as big as we can, and then someone's going to buy us, um, or you know, or like, well, let's run this for the next twenty years? You know, was there already a certain thinking in the in the company or? Um, I think that, that, that the focus was on growth for sure. It was, you know, let's aggregate as large an audience as possible, um, in order to, uh, create real value for, for brand advertisers. We, we saw, saw a niche there. Um, and you know, obviously along the way there, you know, we, we had other kind of M and a conversations, um, that didn't materialize that we took seriously. It's not like we weren't, you know, entertaining those conversations, but mm. it, it certainly wasn't the goal of the, of the team to quickly sell the company. Um, that those, those things just kind of came, came up and came our way. The, the goal was always to, to just get bigger, <laughs> to, to grow. How, how many founders were there, were there at the beginning? What was the sort of four. size of it? Four, four of, of us. Okay, cool. Yeah, well, which is a lot. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, like I said, I think I had an interesting conversation yesterday with someone uh, who uh, who invests in startup, and and he is a big believer in teams uh, and not in individuals, mm -hmm. right? And, and so that's why I'm, mm -hmm. I'm curious. So uh, now, when we so let's let's sort of. You know the company is doing well. You guys are selling, so you you know you're not just uh, a nice idea, but you are in revenue, right? Generating money. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure whether it's profitable because it depends on I guess on what you're spending on the other side um, to do what yeah. you're doing. Uh, was the company you know making money as in being profitable uh, very reasonably quickly? Because um, it seems like you don't really acquiring content, right? It's sort of you aggregating things you know someone else is doing and then you're sure. sharing some of the money you're bringing in so there should be a margin out there right certainly there there was um in some months uh and and toward the end um we were pretty consistently um you know, having profitable months hmm. you're right the the cost structure was not um uh terribly you know burdensome on the company other than the revenue share I mean, our, our, our number one cost was the, the revenue sure. share that we paid out to yeah. our partners, Correct. right? That because we were sense. essentially an ad network. That's right. Um, and we were sharing basically 50-50 yeah. 
um, with, uh, with our partners, which, mm-hmm. you know, so anytime, um, you know, you take 50% off gross, like you're dealing with, with a smaller, um, you know, sort of revenue pool, uh, which just means that that containing costs um, below the line becomes that much more important. Correct. Um, but fifty you know, percent is a decent chunk. <laughs> you know, I wish I could charge fifty percent of everything. <laughs> it's a lot. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, I guess for an agency, as an agency fee, it's a lot. Yeah. Um, as an ad network fee, it, it was sort of standard at the time. Okay. The other thing that was that was. Um, common um in, at the time was uh minimum guarantee payments uh, to publishers okay um as an incentive to to join uh the network because we we weren't the only ad network out there trying to get this business right um we were the only one that was specializing in sports blogs mm. but we weren't even the only one that was specializing in sports websites there were others um so there were there was competitive pressure on the rev share, um, and, and on the kind of the incentives, um, to, to get a, a big site in particular to, to sign. And so we, we had some minimum guarantee payments that were, were being funded by the, um, the, you know, the venture capital that we raised. Right. Um, and that was 2000, you know, 2008, early 2008, we raised our series a. And if you remember what happened in 2000 late later to in 2008 yep. and then yep. throughout 2009 um it was not a good time to be in this kind of business mm. um and you know the advertising market dried yeah, up the um ad networks which had been literally trading for 300 million dollars uh you know just because they were ad networks like a year prior were, were suddenly unable to get funded mm. um and so the world really changed in 2008 and yes. That was when we, um, you know, probably the best entrepreneurial lesson of my life, um, we were forced to dramatically scale down our burn um, and uh, prioritize um, the, the sites, you know, the partners that were most important to us um, and go into survival mode yep. um, because, you know, we, we were burning cash, assuming that there'd be another big round of funding available 12 months later. Um, and, and there wasn't, um, so we had to make that, we had to make that, that, uh, that funding last a lot longer. Yeah. Oh yeah. The the eight or nine, I was two brutal years. Uh, I do remember this very well on our side as well. Similar. We were burning, uh, we, we were doing really well prior to that. And then, as you said, the the advertising dollars just dropped out and and that happens when you, you know, the, the part of the industry we were in as well. Um, and so we had two years there. We had also, we retooled heavily. Now, but it's not about my story here. Um, now, what, two, two last it's a couple of questions before we then move into, obviously, the Fox part of this story. Um, when you were raising funds, uh, let's say, at the peak, um, what was the sort of valuations you guys were using at that time? You know, where, what sort of numbers are we talking about here? Oh, God, I... I'm going to dodge the question, but it's honestly because I can't remember. I don't remember what our <laughs> what our what our valuation was. I, I don't want to I don't want to misstate it. Uh, um, anything roughly you remember? In, in well, in the very early days, um, I think we raised that million dollars on like three and a half pre, okay. if I remember right. And then the six. What was the pre money on the six? 
I honestly, I can't remember. It was something probably some in the range of 20 million, but I, I, I can't okay. remember the well, exact that's, number. That's, those are also reasonable numbers, um, you know, um, which, which wouldn't scare anyone too far away from depending on, you know, what the revenue lines you were already driving at that time. So no, that's cool. Um, now again, so, so you're somewhat surviving to a to nine. Um, and then you, I guess you are, you guys are doing, starting to do more work with, with other media companies, including Fox, um, which I guess mm -hmm. then leads into an interesting conversation with that group. Um, and who knows? I don't know whether it was also because coming out of maybe, you know, one or two tough years here that it all of a sudden looked like being part of something bigger wasn't such a bad idea. What's the story there? How did that all unfold? Yeah. So we had, we'd had a partnership with Fox, um, for, for a couple of years, um, before they bought us, mm. um, we were actually quite valuable to them. We, we were, um, at, 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 I think at the peak yard Barker represented over half of the Fox sports, uh, audience, wow. um, online and online. That's right. Foxsports.com or Fox sports digital audience, mm -hmm. um, as measured by Comscore. Um, And, and we were growing. Um, and Fox had had a foxsports.com had had a distribution partnership with MSN that um, that represented the, the, the majority, you know, the, the, the number one source of traffic for, to foxsports.com, hmm. um, which was a great uh, kind of fire hose of, of audience, but it wasn't growing. Right. Um, and and so Yard Barker for them became a growth engine. Um, as well as just a, a significant contributor to their scale. Um, and so, you know, what happened, I mean, the, the, the story good is that, um, we had another offer, um, to acquire the, the business. Um, and, uh, we had obviously a great relationship with Fox. Um, the other offer was legitimate and, um, you know, meaningful enough that we had to take it seriously. Um, and, uh, and we went to Fox and, and told them and, um, and it would have been a, the deal would have been kind of mutually exclusive, even with a, a, a partnership with, with Fox sports. Um, and so I think because we, um, we represented such a, a, a meaningful share of their audience and, They saw the growth potential, um, and our teams got along really well at every level, product, editorial, you know, sales. Like we were working really well together. Um, they, you know, they decided to, to buy us instead. Hmm. Nice. And now, uh, again, I'll, I'll ask a question. I'll let you answer it or not. <laughs> um, was, uh, it a, was it a good, significant price, uh, and everyone walked away with some good money, or um, how was the deal structured? Yeah, look, I, 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 I won't tell you the sale price, but I will tell you that, um, you know, everybody, uh, made a little money. Um, it, it was for, for, for me and, and my partners, um, you know, it wasn't retirement money. Um, but it was enough that it felt like it was, was the effort. It, you know, the, the whole thing, the whole thing had been worth our effort. And, and I also think that, um, Again, if there's if there are young entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs listening, I, I would give this advice, which is um, your first time. Uh, I think a, a solid single or double is 
is is more than enough um and uh and because it 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 sets you up to do bigger and better uh projects in the future yeah. um you know making a little money even if it's just a little money making a little money for investors um stays with you and and uh you know having the the credential uh, of you know quote unquote successful entrepreneur having brought a, a company through every stage of an of its natural life cycle including exit like that that stays with you and so yeah. you know again like I, the, the 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 certainly the the deal for me personally and for my partner like like it was more money than i'd ever had in my bank account personally yeah. but it, but I, it wasn't like i didn't have to work again but it wasn't the money that made it um that, that made it the right choice kind of looking back in the rearview mirror it was right. everything else that came with selling your company successfully that was more valuable than the money oh, that's great now interesting enough then you know a lot of people obviously when they sell their companies they, they kind of hang around for a little bit and then they're off to the next one right because you kind of caught the entrepreneurial buck and yeah it's sometimes hard to really go out uh, in your case i would say i guess at least what i can read here is that, that it's not exactly what happened right you uh, you spend the next almost six years here right my math roughly correctly here um, then in the Fox Network um, business, right? First Fox Sports Digital, and then down the line, uh, you know, Fox Sports um, in the digital space. So um, you are, I guess, somewhat enjoyed the environment in Fox um, and what you were able to do there. So you know, tell me just a quick one on um, where was that shift of mindset, and it would be part of this, you know, huge, huge empire, you know, media empire here. Um, and then, of course, a little bit quickly on what we we're doing before we head into the world of Activision Blizzard. Sure. Well, yeah. So I thought that after we sold Yardbarker that I would be off doing my next startup as right. soon as possible. Right. Um, we had a bit of an earnout uh, as part of the deal. Yeah. Um, and I fully, we fully earned it out, uh, you know, and I think about a year. Um, and, and so my, my plan at the time was okay you know let's let's go earn earn this out and deliver on the promise we made to fox and then i'll go do my next startup and right. um but that ne that never happened here we, here we yeah, are right. um you know 10 years later and i've yet to do another startup um unless you consider you know what we've done at activision blizzard to be a startup which i actually do and we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, but it was a, it's a very different environment um but uh yeah basically what happened was i got i got sucked into the belly of the corporate beast at fox <laughs> <laughs> and, and um totally willingly by the way you know it's not i was no victim i i uh i was enticed by an opportunity that i didn't think would come around again which was um to to run digital uh for a network like fox that was in the process of launching a new cable network mm -hmm. um fs1 fox sports one was mm -hmm. launching um you know a couple years uh after the acquisition and um and i had a chance to be a part of it and and to kind of build the digital strategy uh, that went along with that 24 7 um, you know, sports network and, um, 
and you know i didn't i didn't know if that opportunity would ever come again because i i don't know how many frankly cable networks are going to launch again right, <laughs> um, right. and uh and so and it was a it was a role that was you know of all the roles at a big cable network television you know network like like fox sports of all the roles all the executive roles at a company like that it was it was the one that i that i felt i was qualified for and that i could do and I, I you know i running digital i was able to to kind of be uh um a, a voice in the room um of very very accomplished uh television executives and producers mm. um who i admired and respected very much um but but my voice was different right like i i have I had this experience. It was what, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I was able to be the digital guy, um, and uh, and they needed that, and and so it, it it was a good fit, and and you know the way that the business was structured, I, I still had a bit of autonomy to run digital as a as a as a business, um, and uh, you know the team um, that was there was. In, uh, inviting me to build an organization of top class talent. Um, and that's what we did. And, um, I don't regret it at all. I think it was a, it was a, it was a really valuable time in my career. Yeah. Well, it, it Fox is an exciting company for sure. And, and I can see that, you know, what you call being sucked into it, uh, is, uh, is, is a good, in a good way. Um, you know, it does that because of the amazing things they do now. I want to get into the world of, of uh, gaming and esports now here, because uh, this is and again such an exciting space to talk about. Um, so obviously, somehow at the uh, so later part year of 2016, um, you were approached, or, or somehow the opportunity came up to join one of the giants in the industry, Activision Blizzard, um, in a very specific role um, as the president CEO of of their esports part. Uh, you know, just you know, you know what I already know and read about it is, of course, um, Activision Blizzard. When they started looking at these leaks, um, they really wanted to follow, I guess, the sports model, right? And and maybe was that part of the reason um, how you ended up with the job, or or how did that job came about? Before we get into what you were doing there, yeah, I, I think that's exactly how the job came about. Um, Bobby Kotick, uh, the CEO of Activision Blizzard. Um, gets credit for the vision uh, for these leagues, mm. um, which was to, uh, for the first time in the industry, in the esports industry, um, to design uh, leagues from scratch that, um, that would create value in all the ways that traditional sports leagues like the NFL or the NBA create value. Um, and that was by building the kind of ecosystem around the league that you see um, around the NBA or the NFL, where you've got owners and sponsors and media rights partners and licensees and players kind of all incentivized to grow the league um, and rowing together um, in the same direction. You know, obviously there's conflict among stakeholders as there always is, but in yeah. general, you know, it's in, it's in everyone's interest who's affiliated with the NBA to grow the NBA, and and that really was missing from from esports. There hadn't been this sort of ecosystem approach 
um, to building esports leagues. And that was partly because there hadn't been much of an emphasis on commercialization mm. um, prior to these leagues. Esports has always been viewed, for the most part, there, there are exceptions, but it has generally been viewed by publishers as marketing for the game. Right. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, things like selling media rights or bringing in, you know, sponsors and, and focusing on like average revenue per fan, like th those kinds of, uh, that, that type of structure just didn't really exist in the space. And so Bobby's thought was, well, the way to bring that structure into the space is to hire people that have worked in that space. Right. Um, that makes and, sense. Yeah. And so, so he hired me and then I, I set out to hire a bunch more sports executives. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's get into that because, uh, and I want to start with, with Overwatch League, but at least it looks like on the paper here, this was sort of the first one, um, Call of Duty came, came, I guess a year after. And, you know, you joined there, let's say late 16 and then, uh, the first league was uh, 2018. So obviously there was a, you know, good year, uh, you know, to build this, set it up, structure it. Um, you know, bringing the teams, etc. So I'd love to really dig a bit around it, and let me just throw a few things out, um, and then you pick it up from there. So first of all, let me let me just for everyone who doesn't know Activision Blizzard, uh, I believe it's the company is hitting about seven billion dollars worth of revenue this year, um, if I got my numbers right, and uh, is the valuation on on uh, on Nasdaq is about sixty seven billion. So we're talking a very large organization here. Uh, with huge revenue streams and, and of course, uh, some of the biggest game titles out there. Um, now, the you know, if I look again, let's be specific on Overwatch, uh, and I'll and then we'll go later to Call of Duty. So, 2018, first time the league starts off with 12 teams um, across, let's say, a bit the world. Um, there were U.S. teams, uh, teams in Europe, Paris, London, and then here in Asia with Seoul and Shanghai. Um, which then, I guess, the year after increased to 20 teams, uh, additional teams. I saw quite a few more in China, uh, so, you know, certainly even second-tier cities, uh, what I would, would call them there. Um, you know, yeah. So you created a regular season. There's prize pool, uh, all this sort of stuff. You know, Again, how did you – where does it all start? Just talk us a little bit through you know, the early days of, of that league before we, we get in there. What are the, some of the numbers which I threw out here? Mm. Yeah, so um, your timeline is is right. Um, we so I started in fall of 2016, and for the first year, uh, we literally spent the first year um, in, in nonstop <laughs> in, in in boardrooms um, debating uh, minor structural points. Mm. Um, and like just until we made it through them all, um, we're, right. we're basically creating the the charter um, for the league and right. um, you know debating what the right rev share structure should be, debating what the right um, you know governance structure should be. We had um, uh, support from um, a couple of law firms that um, happened to be the firms that worked most closely with the big sports leagues. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we had, I'd say, access to um, answers to the question that always came up, which was like, how do they do it? Right. Uh, and we like to think that in that first year, we kind of took the, the best of, 
of all of those structures and put them, um, you know, kind of put, put them together into yeah. something new that was, that was also, um, unique because, uh, esports is unique in, in a lot of ways from, from traditional sports. For one thing, the publisher, um, you know, owns the game, which yeah. is, which is different than, you know, the NFL, the NFL doesn't own football. Right. And so there's, that leads to slightly different design, um, decisions. And, um, so we spent a lot of time kind of going through, uh, those kind of finer points of, of the league structure. Mm-hmm. Um, we also spent a lot of time, um, on the road, uh, meeting with potential owners because from the beginning the, the idea, um, behind the Overwatch League was to create a global city-based league, right. um, where which is which, both of those were firsts, by the way, in esports. There, there hadn't yeah, been. Yeah, I was just gonna ask. So um, no one else had done that at that time, right? Okay. No, yeah, no one else had done that, and 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 so again, credit to Bobby. Bobby's idea was to to uh, to build a city-based league by working with the best possible owner in each of the cities that we wanted to be in. So mm. we create. We started with a list of. Uh, the biggest Overwatch cities, basically where our players were concentrated, mm. um, and then we sort of uh, laid overlaid uh, that with a list of the best possible owners in each of those cities, right. and then we went out and started talking to them, um, and you know we ended up with in that first group of twelve. Um, uh, I think a fantastic group of owners who represented um, uh, interests in in most of the major sports leagues and yeah, I think um, some what I saw you had Craft right? uh, owns Patriot, yeah. you know, the Cronkies there, Arsenal and Rams and uh, and several others, right? So you definitely brought in the big boys. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Um, and, and I'm assuming as the president, you had, I'm sure you were directly involved in those kind of conversations. How was you know, convincing a, an owner of a major, uh, let's call it sporting franchise, whether it's the NFL team or an NBA team or a football club in Europe, um, is it really, is it easy? You would somewhat assume because they know the trick, right? And if they have the foresight that these teams could be the next big thing, um, it might be a really easy conversation. Or is it harder because they don't quite get the world of esports yet? Um, you know, there, there was certainly some education involved. I, I think... Um, you know the uh, but but the world had had begun to change. In other words, I, I when I started on the job, I noticed a lot of there was still a lot of like com- you'd get comments still like, "Whoa, people watch other people play video games? That's crazy!" <laughs> like that you were still hearing that stuff in sure. tw- you know 2016. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, it didn't take long, like within a, a few months or within, certainly a couple of years, um, that wasn't happening anymore. And I think it was because a lot of you know, like more serious investors had started to get involved. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I mean, I'll, I'll humbly suggest that the structure that the franchise structure that we created um, contributed to that because um, we were actually kind of positioning we were selling a real asset right mm. like there was a real you know we were sharing every dollar of league revenue and and you know there was exclusivity in the market and there were commitments to keep the thing going for you know a period of time and there was no relegation and like there was 
all of this kind of wild west that that was what we heard all the time it was like oh right. esports is just the wild west i can't right. invest in that and and so our goal was to to address that concern mm-hmm. by bringing a structure that would look familiar right. um to the market yeah. and I, I think that was ultimately what got a lot of those investors over the line was like they, they could look at it and say like man i might not totally understand esports but i understand the business you're creating right. and and I see how I can create value through this structure, um, and then I'll, you know we'll, we'll learn the, the esports part. We'll figure um, the rest out later. All right, okay. Now let, let's go a little yeah. more again. You know, I just love the numbers, and again, you know, these are obviously things which are written about publicly, uh, which I'll be I'm quoting here. So, the numbers which mm-hmm. which is out there is uh, the first franchises were sold about twenty million dollars for a franchise fee. And uh, and now in the, some of the newer teams are somewhere around thirty to fifty million US. Uh, those are significant numbers, right? Uh, again, this is uh, this is serious money, um, you know. And again, you you can correct me if I'm completely wrong there. Uh, now, two questions I have uh, well, because I'm, I, I can't I can't confirm yeah. or deny them. Okay. <laughs> That's they're, they're not no. numbers that we've ever published. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but you know, they're probably not far off from from where it is. Um, now, maybe it's something you could you could uh, share with me because I know the IPL when the Indian Premier League, you know, cricket was launched, which is again a franchise model which started from scratch, right, and and became what it is now. It is a huge multi billion dollar industry there. Um, they had a ten year the 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 franchise was a ten year deal, and you paid over ten years. So you know it wasn't just give me twenty million dollars up front. And in this case, similar, they, the largest franchise went for about a hundred million at that time. Um, how was it here? Is it you write a check right from the first day, or you pay this over a period of time? I'm assuming the 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 the, uh, the franchise is in perpetuity, or, or how is that structured? Um. Yeah, I can't. I can't get into the payment structure, but but yeah, it, it is a perpetual um, franchise kind of partnership uh, right. or license. Um, and I mean, I can I can share a little about the the economics and kind of how that how that part works. And, um, so, so basically, um, yeah, there's a franchise fee as you mentioned, but but uh, I, there, there's also um, kind of value going in the other direction as well, right? So there's um, the league is responsible, and this is similar to a lot of traditional sports. So the league is responsible for um, for uh, the kind of global revenue um, related right. to league sponsors, um, media rights, yes. uh, you know, any any sort of uh, content partnership, um, any licensing partnership, merchandise, that sort of thing. Hmm. Um, and, and that all of that money comes into the league and then is shared, um, uh, with the teams. Right. Um, right. So, um, and I won't get into the exact splits, but it, it's, um, you know, the, the idea is that, is that, you know, all the teams get an equal share of that league revenue. Right. And then the, the teams, also have the rights to commercialize their their franchise in their local market. Right. Um, so, the revenue from you know local ticket sales, um, from team sponsorship, uh, right? yeah, the usual stuff, local, you- local sponsorship, that right. kind of thing is, is sort of comes in at the team level yeah. and is kept entirely by the teams. Right. And there's a number again. Um, what I read was uh, the first season that um, the total revenue there was almost $200 million for sponsorship and broadcast rights. Again, 
you know, that's a huge number for a fresh, brand new league in any world, at any whether it's traditional sports or, or, or in this particular case. So, you know, you had big brands like Intel, Toyota, you know, Spotify, T-Mobile. I mean, that's, uh, that's again, a very significant number, uh, which is very exciting to see. And, of course, that's, you know, shows, again, the model you guys were building definitely had legs. Um, can you talk a bit about it? How you then quickly were able to get you know these sort of blue ship brands and 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 also a significant TV deal, right? I think the the media deal was with uh, initially with Twitch, right? Which again the number thrown mm-hmm. around there was ninety million. Um, I couldn't quite figure out that was a two year deal whether that was per year or, or total. But again, you know, without you know getting so hung up on the numbers, I'm just throwing them out so people could give a sense um, of the scale of what you guys built there for overnight. Um, you know, but how did you, you know, as I said, so you got the big team owners in uh, now, of course, still convincing advertisers and, 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 a, and a media platform to, to part with their money. That's never easy as well. Um, you know, t- talk a bit about it. Well, but I, I look and again, I can't can't speak to the numbers themselves. But what I'll say is um, that the story about how we attracted those partners, I think, is actually very similar to the story about how we attracted our owners, um, which, which was that we created a structure that was familiar to anyone who'd been investing in traditional sports. Um, but we were able to tell a story about the audience that we were bringing that was very different from anything that they were hearing from any traditional sports league. Mm. Um, so, you know, if you're a T-Mobile or a state farm or, you know, a Coca-Cola, and you're you're quite used to working with traditional sports leagues and you you really enjoy the structure of being able to you know have some entitlement position in along with some you know assets that the league brings either in broadcast or in venue or in social media but but you're looking at the the average age of an nfl fan and seeing it climb into the mid 50s um while you're trying to convert or, or sort of build a, a loyal, you know, soda drinker in, in their early twenties, like it's traditional sports. I think, um, if, if the, if that trend continues, becomes a less and less efficient way for, for a brand to reach a young audience. Hmm. Um, and so we had that story, right? We, we had the story about the, the, um, the audience demographic, combined with the the structure and the way of working um, with us as a league that 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 they were used to and that, and that they liked um, and a lot in a lot of cases they were the same individuals I mean we hired you know a sales team that came straight from the NBA and the NFL right um, yeah. and knew so how to talk the talk well not only that they had the relationships like they, yeah. they, they knew these people I mean it's not not a huge world of, of, um, you know, sports sponsorship. Um, you just, you need to know how to create value for your brand partners. Um, and I think that's what we did pretty well. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it's, I love it. It's it's just such a great parallel, uh, and that's why we're going in it. So because I want people to understand that part of it. Uh, I'm sure not everyone you know has ever heard this. And now, is a, a, just a couple other things that I wanted to touch on before we move over to Call of Duty here, uh, and that is the teams, right? So uh, so now we as a, we 12th star was 20 at the end here. 
Um, there's a price pool, I think, which grew from three and a half to five million, of course, which means, you know, people, you know, the, the teams winning championships, et cetera, you know, get a slice of that. Um, again, anyone who doesn't know what Overwatch is, it's a first person shooter game. So I believe you have six players, right, on each team. Um, so that's correct. And, uh, and so another thing I, I read about is sort of the, the minimum salaries, uh, which again, I don't know whether that was a, um, you guys set a cap, like the way that, you know, you have it in, in traditional sports as well, or, um, that was sort of more open to the teams, how much they wanted to pay, et cetera. Um, but there was a lot of structure to it, right? You know, there were health benefits and even I, I read somewhere there was sort of, you know, a little retirement plan for the, for the players. Um, and so clearly there was a, you know, you came right away with a lot of details of how this, this should be structured and yeah. how teams should operate, right? Is, is that all correct? Yeah, like I said, we spent days <laughs> locked in a, in a room debating those points. And, um, and yeah, it was really important to us mm. to, um, to, to be, uh, you know, to bring a, a kind of a degree of professional operation, um, to the venture that, that out of the gate, um, you know, would, would give everyone involved, um, the assurance that, you know, we were, we were serious about this and plan to do it for a long, long time. Um, obviously we would learn as we went along, but, um, we wanted to start, uh, in a very strong place and, and, you know, players are one of those stakeholders in the ecosystem that, that I talked about. Um, so, yeah, so we set a minimum salary, and the league set a minimum salary. All the owners knew that, uh, knew what that was going in. Right. And there are no surprises or anything. Now, the part which I which I also liked, uh, and again, uh, taking the learnings I guess from around the world and other sports, is that you guys are created a, a league below, right? There is the the contender division. Um, it's like a minor league again in different parts of the world. You have you know you know division, mm -hmm. uh, teams and or, or leagues in Korea and China and Asia Pacific region, North America, etc. Um, I love this that you know you guys clearly thought about that there needs to be a feeder system as well, right? It's not just let's you know have a great league there, but uh, there's no, nothing below which brings up players and so on, right? So um, just just t t touch on that for a minute. Sure. Well, uh, there are many, 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 many more people playing Overwatch and Call of Duty than um, will fit into the league at the you know, at the highest level. Right. Um, so we, the company thinks about competitive gaming and I should be clear. I don't know if we, if we were clear that I'm, I'm no longer in this role, right. um, running, uh, Activision Blizzard esports. Uh, maybe you said that already, but, yeah. but when I was there, right. And the, the way that, and, and I think the way they still think about it, um, is a sort of a pyramid where at the top of the pyramid, you have the fewest players, but playing at the highest level. Um, and that that's the league, right? That's the Overwatch League and the Call of Duty League. But as you go down the pyramid from there, there are multiple tiers of competitive play. And as you go down each tier, you get more, more players in, in that tier. Mm. Um, and so you, know, you can play Overwatch or Call of Duty competitively, like, you know, unranked. Kind of, you can you yourself as a player can be ranked and be matched up with other players in the similar ranks, and you can climb in the ranks and um, within the game itself. Um, and then there are kind of open tournaments um, 
for these games, just as with, as with most competitive games that anybody can enter, um, you know, for, for smaller prizes, but, but still like that's, that's where a lot of people get started. Mm. Um, and then as they ladder up, there are increasingly structured, um, kind of competitive scenes, um, that we designed to be, you know, as you get closer to the, to the league itself, we designed those tiers to be real like showcases for the player, for the best players. Um, and you know, it's tricky to, to manage those ecosystems for sure. You need to make sure that the incentives are there for the players and, and the organizations that are, um, you know, in a lot of cases kind of hiring the players and, um, and you know it's global right so there's 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 a lot to manage but it's critically important um for uh for the longevity of the of the sport at the highest level to have people playing and aspiring to to play at the highest level um and and to make that um uh you know credibly attainable um, and I think that that's one of the things that esports has as an advantage over, let's say, the, M- the NBA or the NFL is that, um, you know, I, I don't have to be seven feet tall to play, to be good at esports. I don't have right. to, to weigh 260 pounds and run a 4440 to be good at esports. Like, there's no physical pre qualification. Um, and, and so, it's the case that many people who play these games um, believe that they have a chance and and do frankly have a chance to to compete at the highest level. Um, And so it's really important that 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 path to pro is there and is clear. Yeah. And I, and I think you guys definitely build, build that. Uh, Now I I wanted sort of uh, touch a little bit on, on uh, the call of duty league as well, which, you know, somewhat I would actually argue call of duty is, is the bigger game um, in, at least in in sort of the world I live in here in, in Asia uh, compared to overwatch. Um, And now, so, you know, and it came a year after, I believe, right? So uh, the the franchise model there started two years years after, right? Uh, It started 2019 um, you know, again, similar 12 teams are there right now, spread somewhat around the world. Um, uh, similar again, sort of, you know, franchise fees model, all that s- stuff. You've got some top teams in there, right? F- Face Clan, I think, has, has, is one of them. Um, so did you basically say, no, look, this model worked already for Overwatch, which is going to copy and paste it over here? Or what is mm. there a difference in, in the Call of Duty League, uh, which you could point out? It was certainly not a copy paste. If uh, I wish it were that easy, but it, it <laughs> I'm sure was it wasn't. Um, exactly. We were <laughs> we were right back to the drawing board. Um, you know, having those debates and um, and uh, focused on designing a league that would fit the game and the audience and player base and all those things. Right. Um, it, it it turned out that um, much of the structure. Uh, translated um, and so you know like the Overwatch League Call of Duty League is city based it's global um, you know revenue sharing works in basically the same way governance works in basically the same way um, but uh, the the structure of the we left the structure of the kind of seasons and um, kind of the, the formatting of the sport itself 
um, completely up uh, up to the, the commissioner of, of that league mm. um, and the and the owners. Um, and, and working very closely with the game team itself, the team that makes Call of Duty. Um, and so you see things in Call of Duty that that you don't see in in Overwatch League, like um, more of a a, a kind of a tier of, of play that's that's maybe feels a little more casual than than Overwatch League um, okay. does. In other words, there, there there are more ways to play Call of Duty than there are to play Overwatch, and and those range from very like you know hardcore competitive to more casual, like a battle royale mode, let's say, or right. you know, a mobile um, uh, version of the game. That that maybe I'm not saying that they they're 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 played casually by the best in the world, but the, my, my point is there are more people who play the game yes. that way casually, which we felt opened up the 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 sport, uh, the addressable audience of the sport to many many more people. Um, if we found a way to incorporate those modes into the competitive design of, of the league. Mm. And, and so you just see that you, you see a lot more kind of variety, um, in how call of duty league operates day to day. Um, and, uh, and I think you'll, you'll see even more of that over time. Um, but yeah, many of the same owners, um, got involved. Um, not, it's not entirely the same ownership, but, but many of the same owners, nice. uh, that, that, that joined us for overwatch, you know, also came along for the ride in call of duty. Yeah, right. oh, cool. Now, look, I mean, we, we, as I say, we can keep going on this stuff. It's, it's really in a very interesting space. And I'm sure for everyone listening, um, really learning how this, this le- these leaks were structured. And of course, you know, Activision Blizzard has many other titles, you know, World of Warcraft, you know, we have Candy Crush and Hearthstone, you name it. Um, you know, and some of them have competitions as well. And I, and I, and I get to it in a, in a later a bit to, to compare the leaks versus these major events, you know, when you hear tens of millions of dollars of price money, because there is a big difference between the two, really. Uh, and I wanted to, you know, pick your brain a bit on that side of it there. Um, so, you know, so I, I, I'll kind of start wrapping up a bit the, the leak discussion here. Um, one question is, and, and again, just reading through um, some of the, the, you know, commentary this year, obviously 220, uh, the leaks weren't able to play physically as it was previously. So it was mostly, on, you know, mostly all of it, uh, online tournaments. Yeah. And then, you know, so it was this whole discussion online about latencies, right? Um, you know, mm-hmm. that certain teams might have, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, whatever, uh, competitive advantage over others because of that being closer to the server and all this stuff. How did you guys manage to deal with that? Um, you know, this crazy 220, which we're just about to wrap up here this year. Um, you know, and how did it affect, you know, what you guys were doing as a league? Yeah. Well, look, obviously this is, we, we did not plan for 2020 to go the way that 2020 <laughs> went. Um, but, uh, but given the circumstances, I, I, I think that the team did an exceptional job of, of delivering a, a product that had competitive integrity, entertainment value, uh, and that didn't sacrifice any of the kind of continuity from last season, right. um, or didn't didn't sacrifice the opportunity um, or compromise on the opportunity that Call of Duty League had in its inaugural season. Hmm. Um, we had a few events very early on, uh, you know, January, February, right. um, before 
we had to shift everything online and those events were fantastic. Um, they, I think showed us and our owners and, and others, our partners that there's real demand for, um, for, you know, seeing these events live. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, I think the plan, you know, the last time I was at least on the record with this was to, it was to be back in front of live audiences as soon as it was, you know, safe and made sense for everybody. Right. That said, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention, right? And we mm -hmm. learned so much this year, not because we wanted to, but because we had to right. um, about what's possible with things like online play. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the reality is, yes, there are concerns that come up, um, like the ones you mentioned, but it is, it's, it's perfectly viable, um, to play matches, you know, online with, with some, um, you know, with, with, with some caveats, like you, you do have to be, you know, roughly speaking on the same continent as your opponent. Right. Um, ideal, the closer you are to their time zone, the better, um, in fact, when we, um, played our, our Overwatch League grand finals this year, um, the, uh, the finals, uh, took place in Korea. Um, the teams were separate from each other. Um, mm -hmm. and there was certainly no live audience. Um, but, uh, both teams were in Korea, right. um, in order to kind of minimize the latency issue. Um, but look, the game, the games are also extremely sophisticated themselves, at kind of normalizing um, latency between uh, competitors in a game so that neither has an advantage or disadvantage, mm -hmm. um, uh, at least in theory. Now, you know, some teams are, are more accustomed to playing with, with lower or higher latency, and sometimes you can consider that to be an advantage or a disadvantage. But I, I think this technology is only going to get better. Um, I think what you'll see as a prediction, nothing more, but um, what you'll see in the future of esports is a good blend of good mix of kind of online competition and uh, large in-person audience events to give those fans who, you know, for, for a lot of these, these fans, like this isn't just recreation or, or, that, you know, something they like to watch. It's really their, their, huge. their identity, their lifestyle. Absolutely. Um, and, and so they want to be around other people who, who feel the same way. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think in-person esports is always going to be part of the scene. Yeah, no, I agree. And I've, you know, watched some of the videos of some of the events and, you know, the arenas are full and the fans are as excited as, as, you know, football fans or, or fans in other sports. So, okay. uh, yeah, I, I love these, these videos, you know, how the fans always react to, uh, to the, the play, uh, you know, what's happening in the game. Uh, now, and that's interesting because, um, I just wanted to touch on that for a minute. You know, so you have teams which are all brand new, right? These are franchise teams, you know, to some degree. Uh, maybe there are um, esports teams behind it which are known already, and in, in, you know, because they have multiple teams, maybe in other games as well. Uh, but sometimes it, these are brand new. So from what I can see, again, it's currently still very much driven by the star power of the players, right? They're the well-known guys, right? Um, who, you know, the legends in, in the game, et cetera, which, again, is not that different in some cases, uh, you know, how traditional sports obviously runs as well. Uh, how do you, how would you describe that? You know, how do they build these franchises and, you know, how do these 
let's call them star players kind of move around and you know um, put their mm. their stamp on this well certainly um, you know we're in the era of sports fandom um, where you know, players um, are building direct relationships with fans and people are following them in any sport people are following players as they move from team to team and um, you know that that is in effect in the esports world as well. Um, I, I think you know again, I, I'm not in this role anymore, and so this isn't me commenting on the work I have to do, but more just an opportunity that I think mm. the the industry has. I, I think there's there's a lot of opportunity to do an even better job of turning players in, into stars. Mm. Um, you, you know, there there aren't as many kind of household names. Um, in esports, as I think there will be, um, and I think that's just a, a matter of time, and and also kind of plugging all of the different uh, pieces of the ego- ecosystem together toward that end. In other words, you know, if you think about like what Nike did to create the the star that, that Michael Jordan right. became. Or, or, you know, Michael Jordan is maybe not the best example because he was a huge star regardless of what Nike did. But, um, but like Penny Hardaway or, right, like there are these other um, kind of, you know, Penny Hardaway was, they, they had to turn him into a cart. Nike had to turn him into a cartoon hmm. um, in, in order to, right, in order to give him a, a personality. And, um and that made him a, a, a star that right. made him more of a star than he was. And so I, I think like as sponsors start to get more sophisticated about this, as media uh, partners become more sophisticated about story with storytelling around the players. Um, and I think just time, you know, general acceptance of professional gaming as a, as a thing in the culture um, will can create those opportunities for players. I, I look, Korea is a very interesting case study here because um, in Korea there, there's not the there's there's there hasn't been the same um, you know whatever stigma there there is in the West around being a professional gamer it, it has never existed in, in Korea and okay. and as a result you know you see professional gamers on the cover of GQ right and and um, and if you go to a uh, an Overwatch League match in Korea, like the, the women, the girls outnumber the boys right. um, in in the audience. Yes, um, and which is know, in the traditional sport like, as well. There, actually, you know, I've done a bunch of events there, and uh, it, it is yeah, it's interesting that the Korean audience is always has a, especially in in sports, has a has a female. A large female audience there. They love these guys and they scream too. <laughs> I'm sure they do the same. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that's that's about the players, right? Yeah, More than anything else, they that's they right. love the players. And and so I, I think like one thing that I'm excited to watch in the space is the kind of call it like a cultural export yeah. of of that uh, phenomena um, to the rest of the world from Korea. I mean. Korea is exporting a lot of stuff right now. Yeah. K-pop is massive globally, yes. um, right? Like there, there, there's, there, um, you know, the the best picture uh, winner was it last year? Uh, Paris. I was 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 a Korean film. Like, there's a lot of Korean culture being exported globally. Mm. Um, I think the the 
Korean approach to esports um, can be exported to great effect, um, and that and that's where you'll start to see um, more of that star power created, I believe. Yeah. And that's actually interesting. There, there's um, again things I was reading up on when you guys had your first deal with Twitch. Um, I know now I think the whole most of the the product from the company is on YouTube, but. Uh, at that time, what I really loved is, and again, this is why I want to bring it up um, to learn for, for for everyone is, you know, Twitch then created private chat rooms, you know, with the players. Um, you had, you know, even you could talk to the officials. There were also different camera angles you could choose. So again, they created, you know, and I believe they created the sort of um, all access pass for for mm-hmm. for for, play, for for the fans to watch, you know, and obviously that's how they monetized it. Um, you know, is you know again, some of it yes happens in the traditional world of sports as well, but not really quite there yet. And and this interactivity with the stars, right? Whether they stream in their own let's call it spare time or while they're training and practicing, or of course you know some are now full time streamers. They do they don't even play the let's say competitively anymore. If you take Ninja or someone like that, uh, and obviously making huge money on the back of it. That's where I feel traditional sports hasn't really grasped that opportunity yet. You know, it's really still much more about just the game itself. You know, that ninety mm. minutes, that three hours, whatever it is, um, on the Saturday Sunday versus you know in esports and in gaming, it never stops. It really is all day, all night long, right? Yeah, yeah. No, you're you're right. I mean, other sports like to say that there's no off season, but there's really no off season in this stuff. Yes, correct. Right? There's, there's, there's something going on at all times. Um, that's a big opportunity too. And like, look the the um, the traditional sports metaphor was a really good place for us to start, I believe, hmm. um, because of the way that it brought serious investors. Um, and when I say investor, I mean anybody that's investing time or money or partnership into the space. Like the traditional sports model unlocked that, um, and that, and that created a lot of value. It was a great place for us to start, but it can't be the whole story. Like the esports can't get itself locked into that traditional sports model too literally, or it will miss a big opportunity to to engage fans all day every day like you're describing which is an opportunity that traditional sports don't have um so i I think like starting laying the foundation to to kind of make this look like an attractive investment was i believe the right move but it it can't be the only move Hmm. and it's interesting i want to quote someone else Uh, jens hilgers i know you recognize his name i know he's one of the founders of esl of course and uh now runs uh, the bitcraft ventures which is at 160 million, uh, you know, fairly highly powered uh, private equity fund there, uh, and he actually quoted. This was a German uh, podcast I was listening to, uh, and he basically said he believes uh, traditional sports can learn more from esports than the other way around. And I think that's a bit what you're saying. You know, maybe you know initially it made sense to look at it, you know, follow certain structures. Um, but I think I do believe, and you know, the more I every day I learn about you know the, this world here is. Um, it is somewhat the other way around. I think traditional sports can learn a ton of things from from gaming and esports, how it structures it, and how the monetization part is so different. Um, you know, so mm-hmm. it's an exciting space, I think, for everyone. There, it's a dance. You know, it, yeah. like we we got to dance together, and um, I I think that's that's kind of what makes it fun. And um, you know, there, there's there's 
so many sports executives like myself that made the jump over to to esports and you know we're able to add value right away because we you know we spent our career doing this and and it was missing from esports but but i agree with jens i i I think um in terms of uh like esports has so many things that traditional sports wishes it had um the audience the digital native nature of the product and the digital native nature of the audience the, um, I mean, I mentioned the youth of the audience, but also the the, the global nature of the game, um, of, of a lot of these games. Like, young, global, and digital native are the three things that every sports league wishes it was. Yeah. No, no, totally. I mean, the audience is amazing, and, and clearly um, that's where, where everyone's going after, Generation Z here. Now, where I want to slowly wrap this up because I know it's also getting late there for you. Um, really appreciate uh, all this sharing, Pete. And I know we can't really talk that much about your current role um, within Activision Blizzard. We maybe have to leave that for another day, another conversation once you can share some of the new ventures you're working on there. Uh, I guess as sort of an entrepreneur in, in residence role there. Um, so let's. Re- I want to wrap it up with with uh, with another sort of little quick comparison here, um, and that is, you know, the leagues. Of course, as as we talked about earlier, there's prize money and and you know also the, there's revenue share models, etc. And then you have these mega events, um, you know, and and again, of course, Activision Blizzard has some of them too so in your big in your big titles. <clears throat> but the biggest really are not necessarily your own titles, uh, but you know, anyway, we, we can have a maybe chat about it in a general sense, right? So we have Dota 2 with $40 million there for the international Fortnite, you know, 15, 20 million dollar price pools. Um, total, supposedly, what I read last year was 64 million, which across you know, multiple of their events. Uh, those are huge numbers, uh, you know, in any, you know, even compared, of course, again, to traditional sport. I think the only one which came close in total prize pool was the U.S. Open. Um, and even there, the winner, you know, of the U.S. Open tennis, you know, was similar to the, the winner of, of Fortnite there with, you know, three million plus. Um, let's let's, you know, besides putting these numbers out, which, again, you know, many people might have seen and read about. But the part which I thought is interesting, obviously, how those numbers are generated. Right. And and, and maybe you guys do the same thing as well. It isn't just the, the, the publisher, or the developer writing a very large check. It is self-generated right through passes yeah. and, and other ways and means. So, you know, talk us through that a little bit, how that works and, and how the fans are really driving these numbers up on their own, in a sense. Right. Yeah, look, the the one that um, most people look at because numbers are so outrageously large um, to to a lot of people um, is Dota, right. um, and you know, Dota is a, a a game that's you know very competitive game has people playing at the highest levels, and um, had, they have an event uh, once a year um, that they call the international yeah. that usually has a prize pool in the, you know, kind of mid tens of millions uh, of dollars, mm. um, which is a huge number, right? Yep. As you say, like, it, like you can compare that to any traditional sport prize pool that you want and it's going to stack up pretty Absolutely. nicely. Um, and, and, but what people have to understand about Dota is, um, one, like th- this is basically that game's, business model um, to crowd to sell uh, a product that they call the compendium, Mm -hmm. um, which is 
a it's sort of a, a bundle of digital content, a lot of digital content, mm-hmm. um, and kind of special streaming access to the the the, the tournaments, yep. um, and that their promise to their customers is that if you buy when you buy the compendium, you know half of the money you're spending is going to go into the prize pool. Yeah, and it therefore goes straight to the best players in the world, right. and and so the 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 phenomena is um, is that that you know even though Dota is published by a big company um, that makes a lot of money, um, the fans still kind of feel like they're participating mm. in the in the in the scene and in the development of the scene, and and it's really important to to point out that they're getting a lot of value in the form of digital content in in turn and and so it's not just that they're 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 paying that money to watch the matches that's not right they can watch it for free on twitch um they're paying for that for that content um and the players are benefiting it's 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 a it's a it's it's a good model Um, but but as i said before this is like this is the entire it's really the business model for the game like they, they 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 basically put their their whole monetization um, program uh, into this you know into this tentpole event mm. um, for the most part. Yeah, yeah, and exactly, and, and that, that's interesting because there are is again very different model than what we were just talking about earlier with with what you guys are doing with the league. So um, there are different models out there, and and I think the point you you just said is is what I want to highlight is that the fans really feel they are directly engaged with it, and they see yeah. where their money is going. Right now, let's think traditional sports yeah. clearly. The salaries of a player, of the coach, and 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 why these teams exist in traditional is the same thing, right? Is the fans' money, right? Whether they're paying, yeah, you know, the, the ticket right. to watch it, or or they're paying, you know, B Sky B, you know, uh, two hundred dollars to to have the box there. Uh, it is still the fan. It's always somehow the it's fans' different. money, right? Uh, to some degree, you know, there's it, of course sponsors. It's somehow different though. It's Correct. Somehow different. That was like, the point just... I was going to point point out. Exactly. It's there is a difference, right? I, I I think it's because look I've been following both of these worlds now for a while and like I think I think traditional sports athletes players stars are getting better at this okay so I I think the trend is moving in the right direction but for a long time th- these players really felt untouchable they felt like completely separate from the fans they kept mm-hmm. themselves separate from the fans you know they come and sign autographs and. Yeah. And they do commercials and well, stuff, well, but they you play the short game, right? You you shorten the the supply to increase the demand to some degree. That's really what yeah. sport did for a lot long time, right? You're right. You're absolutely right. Like like put these players on a pedestal, yeah. make them you know superhuman, um, and people will want to come watch them. Well, that that was true, and the short game worked. But what it didn't do is develop any level of relationship. Um, like real relationship between players and fans. And, you know, going back to Yard Barker, we did that with the blogs. Um, but, uh, and, and, and then Twitter kind of changed things even more. And then YouTube, and then, like, you know, I, I think more and more sophisticated players, especially ones that are coming up in the generation where they don't remember the life before the internet, are, are doing a better and better job of this. But it's not like like gamers. Like, gamers literally they stream their practice exactly <laughs> <laughs> and 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 they um 
and they talk to their fans like yes. on, on the chat. Like they use these same tools that the fans use. Right. They're just better at the game. And so when when a Dota player and or even a, or an Overwatch player um, or a Call of Duty player makes it to the highest level, like they've got this group that's been with them right. for so long, and, and those fans are not just like picking a favorite player and saying, Oh, I like that guy because whatever he hits a lot of home runs. Like yeah. they, they grew up with him for their friends. They're Correct. rooting for their friends. Yeah. 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 The fan community, I can see that in, in, in gaming is, you know, or in esports also is, is huge. And I love that, um, how that's built. I mean, my son was telling me the other day that he was watching a movie with one of the gamers, right? <laughs> so they, you know, this is on Twitch, of course, you know, they, they see, they stream it at the same time, the movies from, uh, um, from Amazon and, and they're just sitting there as a community watching, watching a movie together. I was just, you know, can you imagine a, a sports star doing that? <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, you know and maybe they will eventually right you know they, I'm sure as usual but as I said that's where that learning really and this is what these podcasts are really to some degree all about I want to highlight these differences and at the same time where both parts can learn from each other and, and hopefully together uh, become better you know in the next ten years here so. Pete, this was awesome. You know, we can go on forever, but we also play the short game. We want to leave people hanging with a little more to come for next time. <laughs> sure. And so thank you so much for your time there. Have a great day in Utah. Um, and there should be some nice snow, I guess, uh, if it's not already there so soon there. So enjoy the skiing and uh, happy holidays. And we'll talk again soon, hopefully. All right, Marcus. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much for, for your time as well. And, um, I guess just if, if anybody wants to continue the conversation, um, I'm pretty easy to find on Twitter. So that's that's where I'll leave it, I guess. Yeah, Twitter, or, or I guess I found you on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, yeah, let's get in touch with, with Pete uh, exactly if you want to hear some more about this. And, and I'm certain we will talk some more soon, too. I'd enjoy that. Thanks a lot, Mark. Definitely. Happy holidays. Cheers. You too. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.